This is the TED Radio Hour. Each week, groundbreaking TED Talks. TED Talks. Uh, TED. TED. Technology. Entertainment. Design. Design. Is that really what it stands for? I've never known that... Delivered at TED conferences around the world. the gift of the human imagination. We've had to believe in impossible things. The true nature of reality beckons from just beyond. Those talks, those ideas, adapted for radio. From NPR. I'm Guy Raz. And on the show today, citizen science. So back in March 2011, Joey Ito had traveled from his home in Japan to Boston. So I'm actually interviewing for my job at the Media Lab. That would be the Media Lab at MIT, where Joey now works as the director. And I've gone to the hotel and kind of fallen asleep. And I'm trying to remember exactly what time, but it's sometime in the middle of the night in Boston, the earthquake happens in Japan. So I wake up to email and news. Tonight, the big one hits Japan. A All going on and on about the earthquake. One of the largest ever measured. And it triggers a massive tsunami all the way to the U.S. I can't reach my wife on the phone because the phone system's out. Finally get through via Skype. She's okay. I have friends in the Tohoku region. I find out they're safe. Japan declares a state of emergency at a nuclear plant as radiation levels surge. The reactor is billowing smoke and there's an explosion and there's a cloud sort of headed roughly towards Tokyo. And our house is sort of partway from Fukushima to Tokyo in Chiba. So I have my family asking me what they should do. Joey wanted to make sure that they would stay safe as that radiation cloud spread. And because he was thousands of miles away at the time in Boston, he did the only thing he thought could actually help. He turned to Twitter. You know, you had people tweeting out questions, and you had people tweeting out answers. And a bunch of them started a group chat on Skype to streamline everything they knew about what was going on in Japan and what they could do to help. We were starting to talk about what else we would like to know and who might know how to do that. And so it was kind of this virtual team building. And, you know, I was translating um, Japanese press conferences and trying to correct the U.S. and foreign media when they got a story wrong. And so at the beginning, we don't know the difference between gamma rays and alpha rays and beta rays. And so we're also trying to find people who understand this stuff. And through friends of friends and friends of friends, we start to find the experts and bring them into our community. And that community, it ended up turning into a website called SafeCast. Because at the time, the Japanese government just wasn't giving people enough information. One of the key things that I think everybody wanted to know was, where is the radiation? Because yeah. you can't see it, right? right? And the Japanese had drawn these concentric rings, the government, that sort of showed the ground zero of this thing and these circles. And anyone who knew anything about anything knew that the radiation would travel with the wind and it would change based on rain and humidity. And, and these maps that they were drawing where they were talking about the exclusion zones and how they were going to evacuate people didn't have any of those weather models informing them. And most people didn't have access to Geiger counters. They're completely sold out. So we designed and built our own. How'd you do it? Well, we collected the different types of hackers that we needed, hardware hackers, sensor hackers, and people in hacker spaces that were willing to assemble them and uh, collected information and parts from the internet. But how did you even know how to start making this stuff, though? A lot of this was about networking. So one of the guys who reverse engineered the Xbox at MIT grad, he understood the manufacturing process. Another kid, Peter, understood how to do the high energy stuff. And then we happened to run into the guy who made Geiger counters uh, to instrument Three Mile Island after their disaster. Gosh. And as a group, they, they were able to put it together. And those Geiger counters were used by ordinary citizens who would just walk around their neighborhoods and measure the radiation and then report what they found to SafeCast. Years later, you know, our data is good. People trust us. The governments all over the world now invite our citizen scientists to their meetings. We've got, you know, peer-reviewed papers. And, and finally, the Japanese government even is happy now because we have an annual report that sort of looks into the Japanese government response. And, and, you know, we criticize what's bad, but we also acknowledge what they've done well. And so we've become sort of the trusted third party uh, in Japan 
on both the recovery and the current situation. So a, a bunch of, I guess, uh, amateurs mm-hmm. pulled this off. Yes. I think, you know, we were much more amateur at the beginning, and I think a lot of the amateurs became experts, but we also recruited a lot of the experts. Some of them were the naysayers, and we said, well, just join us, help us, work with us. So over time, more and more of the experts joined this movement. But at the beginning, we absolutely knew nothing. All we had was this kind of desire to figure it out. On the show today, we're going to explore ideas about citizen science and the power of human curiosity. Because with more access to data and information than ever before, a lot of the science that's going on today is starting from the bottom up. And it turns out some amazing things can happen when everyone, from academics to amateurs, comes together in the name of science. We'll hear more from Joey Ito later in the show, but right now, a story about a mom who took on the world of science to save her kids. When, when you think of the term citizen science, what do you, like, what does it mean to you? It's interesting uh, because it's such an almost new term compared to our start 24 years ago. To me, it does mean people uh, rallying themselves to do things that will change the face of science. This is Sharon Terry. What's your um, professional background? My professional background is I have a master's in religious studies and was a college chaplain. And that was what you, I guess, planned to do with your life? Yeah, I pretty much thought I would probably stay in the counseling psychology, pastoral counseling kind of realm and do that for my life, yes. But you are not like a, uh, you've, you've no, no like sort of science credentials, like, uh, right? No. Right, okay. No, and I, and I didn't take any biology, and I, as my husband was fond of saying, I didn't know a gene from a hubcap, and neither did he. All <laughs> <laughs> right. 25 years ago, Sharon's life was pretty ordinary. She was married, her husband ran a small construction company, And when her two kids came along, she decided to be a stay-at-home mom. And uh, and life was pretty good. Life was great. Life was, you know, typical what one assumes life will be, which is you have two little kids. They're healthy. They learn. They're curious. Life is wonderful. Tell me when and what you first started to notice about about your kids. So it was quite... um, difficult. I was at the birthday party of my niece when I noticed uh, spots on the sides of my daughter's neck. What's your daughter's name? Elizabeth. Elizabeth. Yeah. And I started to be very curious about if this was an allergy to laundry detergent or something, why weren't they all the way around her neck? Why were they increasing in number? Why did they look kind of strange and stay there all the time? And the kind of thing that the pediatrician says, you're being an overprotected mom. And the mom says, "Mm, this just doesn't sit quite right with me. There's something going on here. Sharon Terry picks up the story from the TED stage. So it's two days before Christmas, 1994. I took Elizabeth to a dermatologist. And the dermatologist takes a quick look at her neck and says, she has pseudoxanthoma elasticum. And then he shuts off the lights and looks in her eyes. I am sick to my stomach. Why are you looking in her eyes for a skin rash? I scream and make no sound. So there it is. Elizabeth has pseudoxanthoma elasticum, PXE for short. It's a slowly progressing premature aging disease. It causes loose, wrinkly skin in the flexor areas. It causes legal blindness and a host of cardiovascular problems. Questions mix with fear and erupt like bile in my throat. What, what do you know about this? How do you know for sure? What is the prognosis? He then just glances at our son and says, he has it too. We want to flee back to the land of normal. God, as a parent with two little kids. Yeah. It was completely overwhelming, and I was really trying to keep it together, obviously, for her and and for Ian. Ian's your son? Yes. Do you remember calling your husband and... um and telling him this? Yes, I remember calling Pat, my husband, and just pacing, pacing, pacing. And I remember really focusing on the skin problem more than anything else. Like, what are we going to do? Our two kids are going to have this wrinkly 90-year-old skin. What are we going to do? What are we going to do? And then I called our pediatrician right after that and said, this is the diagnosis. What does this mean? And unfortunately, all she had was an old Merck manual. And Hmm. she looked in it and said, 
Oh, and the other thing he might not have told you is life expectancy is about 30 years old. Wow. So I'm assuming the first question you, when you were able to recover from the initial shock was, can this be treated? Sure, because the other naivete I had was, just write me the prescription that I'll go get the pill or the cream or whatever we need to do so that we get rid of this disease. What did he say when you asked for the treatment? He said over and over, I don't know. We don't know. And what I also began to learn is that there's 7,000 rare diseases and most of them we don't know. So you're a parent with two small kids, seven and five at the time, and you are told they have this condition and there's nothing you can do. Yeah, so as a as a parent, um, I actually can go straight back into that feeling right now, the just a feeling of being sick and not knowing how do we go forward, what do we do? How did we step across this line? Can't we go backwards? How can we wind the clock back? Two days after Christmas, researchers come from a university in Boston, and they take blood from us and our children for a research project focused on finding the gene. A few days later, researchers come from a medical center in New York and say they want blood, too. These are children. Don't make them face the needle twice. Go and get your share from the other researchers. They laugh, incredulous. Share? It is then that we learn that there is little sharing in biomedical research. And it became quickly apparent within a month that there was no systematic effort to understand PXE. Researchers competed with each other because the ecosystem was designed to reward competition rather than to alleviate suffering. This moment, more than any other, lit a fire beneath my husband Pat and me. I can't imagine how infuriating it must have been to, to see scientists who were unwilling to collaborate. I mean, even, even though it, it could have led to a breakthrough. It was crazy. It was like a first crack in the wall for us to look behind the wall and say, really? Really? This is human health and we're not going to share? We were just incredulous. So we drove back. We were living in Sharon, Massachusetts, and we drove back to Worcester, Mass., where we had been and went to the medical center because it was public and could go in and comb through all the journals that were ancient in many cases. And I photocopied 400 articles and brought them home. I think in addition to the kick in the gut that our kids had this disease, we realized we're going to be alone, and if anything's going to get done for them, we were going to have to do it. In just a moment, how Sharon Terry became a citizen scientist to find the answers. I'm Guy Raz, and you're listening to the TED Radio Hour from NPR. Hey, everyone. Just a quick thanks to two of our sponsors who help make this podcast possible. First to WordPress. Creating your website on WordPress.com helps your customers find you, remember you, and connect with you. At WordPress.com, you'll find hundreds of beautiful designs, the ability to add a custom domain name, and features to make your business more visible online using the technology that powers 28% of all websites. Get 15% off your new website today at WordPress.com slash radio hour. Thanks also to Google Cloud Platform. If you're looking to move to the cloud, Google Cloud Platform provides security that scales with your business and keeps your data safe, no matter how fast you grow. Built on more than 15 years of experience, Google Cloud Platform is focused on keeping customers, applications, and data safe, taking advantage of the same security model that Google's done with Gmail, Search, and other apps. To learn more about Google Cloud Platform, visit cloud.google.com. It's the TED Radio Hour from NPR. I'm Guy Raz. And on the show today, citizen science. And before the break, we were talking with Sharon Terry. She's a former college chaplain with no training in the fields of medicine or biology. But when her two children were diagnosed with a rare condition known as PXE, Sharon and her husband sprang into action. So you and Pat went to a medical library and started to look up any and all things about this very rare disease 
how did you even understand what you were reading? Yeah, it was so hard to understand. It was it, it was completely Greek to both of us. And so what we did is we went back to bookstores. We we were in the Boston area so we could go to, you know, MIT and Harvard's bookstores and buy various encyclopedias and, and medical dictionaries and start to learn the language. Wow. Because we realized that if we understood the gene and what it did, that we might be able to halt the disease or at least slow it down, and that would be good. So the first thing we did was find more people with the disease and ask them if they would donate blood that we would control. So we would essentially be the holders of this resource and then ask the researchers to come to this well and only use it if they were going to share with each other. Using traditional media, we garnered around 100 and 150 people around the world who we asked, would you give us your blood, your tissue, your medical histories, your medical records? And we brought all of that together. We quickly learned that this shared resource was not going to be enough. And so we decided we had to do hardcore research. So we borrowed bench space at a lab at Harvard. A wonderful neighbor came a couple times a week and sat with the kids from 8 p.m. to 2 a.m. while Pat and I extracted DNA, ran and scored gels, and searched for the gene. Generous postdocs tutored us as we went along. Within a few years, we found the gene, we patented it so that it would be freely available. We created a diagnostic test. We put together a research consortium. We held research meetings and opened a center of excellence. We found more than 4,000 people around the world who had PXE and held patient meetings and did clinical trials and studies. You must have, in a fairly short period of time, the two of you become leading experts on this disease. Yeah, I, th I would say within a year, we were the leading experts on this disease. Wow. Yeah. <laughs> and, and it's really not all that extraordinary because nobody was paying attention to the disease. But, but it is pretty extraordinary, Sharon. I mean, you, you guys actually found the PXE gene. Right. And, and I mean, it must have been like looking for a needle in a haystack. Yeah, absolutely. And we found it in collaboration with a number of scientific groups. How long did it take? It took us from when we started in 1995 until about 1999 uh, the gene was discovered. Four years of, of working really, really hard and four years of thinking once we found the gene, the next day we would have the prescription and it would all be over. And? And it wasn't. I mean, here we are in 2017 and we have this year four treatments to try out but it took all this time to get ready to even trial some things. But we started to also see patterns in the clinical presentation, in the, in the way the signs and symptoms exhibited themselves in people. And so that was very, very valuable to know, how does this disease progress? How does it show up? Do people die at 30? No, they don't, actually. Those sorts of things became important for us personally, clearly, but also important for all the people with the disease. I know that you would disagree, but you and Pat are extraordinary. I mean, you, you went and jumped into this science and, and made a huge contribution to our understanding of this disease. But, I mean, do you think anybody could have done what you did? So I think anybody can do this. Each of these 7,000 rare diseases is going to need a champion. And those champions have to be able to cut through all the red tape, figure out how to get resources that would be focused on that disease, and actually stand on the shoulders of each other, the way we've seen citizen science work in other areas. We joined with, and I eventually led, Genetic Alliance, a network of health advocacy, patient advocacy, research, and health organizations. We built scalable and extensible resources like biobanks and registries and directories of support for all diseases. And as I learned about all those diseases and all those disease communities, I realized that there were two secrets in healthcare that were impacting me greatly. The first, there are no ready answers for people like my kids or all the people I was working with, whether common or rare conditions. And the second secret, the answers lie in all of us together, donating our data, our biological samples, and ultimately ourselves. Citizen scientists, activists, hacks, who are using crowdsourcing, do-it-yourself science are changing the game. Sure, it's really hard to discover and develop interventions and therapies. There's a lot of stakeholders with lots of interests and misaligned incentives like publishing, promotion, and tenure. 
I don't fault scientists for following this path, but I challenge them and us to do this differently, to recognize that people are at the center. What's interesting is that you, your process truly did respect the credentialed scientists. I mean, you went and read their work and then took their work and allowed it to guide you. So it's not like you were rejecting what they did and said, I know what I'm doing. I'm a citizen scientist. I mean, you you needed those scientists. Right. And that's why even the term citizen scientist is funny to me, although I know now it's a popular term to describe what we did all those years ago and what we continue to do is to say, yes, let's build on what already exists. Let's see what's credible and not credible. I'm not going to take it all and just swallow it, but I'm also going to contribute to it in a novel way. I think that as somebody right now who has 140 peer-reviewed papers, which is what I have, who has spoken all over the world in different forums, things like that. It's a kind of way that allows me, without the kind of blinders that science often provides and has to provide, um, it allows me to see the bigger picture and to ask questions that they might not have asked. Yeah. I mean, it, it seems like what this allows for is a feeling of empowerment, especially when you feel disempowered by the circumstances you find yourself in. Yes. So... You find yourself feeling disempowered, feeling like that your feet have been knocked out from under you. And I think working with each other and seeing paths together and knowing that you can create new ones because somebody else did as well makes you very aware that you have the power. And I think that's the very biggest thing for citizen science overall is I'm the expert. We're each the expert. And together, that many experts, we're really going to make a difference. Sharon Terry, she's the CEO of Genetic Alliance. It's an organization that tries to understand and treat rare genetic diseases. You can see her full talk at tedmed.com. And by the way, Ian and Elizabeth are now adults and both are married. Their disease is progressing and there's still no cure, but Elizabeth recently took part in a clinical trial for a PXE treatment, and Ian is scheduled to take part in one later this year. On the show today, citizen science, ideas about human curiosity, and the power of ordinary people to find answers from the bottom up. And this next discovery, it started back in 2009 when NASA launched the Kepler mission. It was so simple what it did is that, you know, it had, you know, this gigantic camera that was very, very precise, and it stared at a single patch of sky for four years straight, taking very precise measurements of how bright the stars in that one patch of sky was. This is Tabitha Boyajan. I'm a professor at Louisiana. Uh, excuse me. I'm going to say yeah, that please, sure. Yeah, no problem. <laughs> this is a really hard question. Uh, <laughs> I am a professor of astronomy at Louisiana State University. So anyway, this Kepler mission... It was looking at over 150,000 stars in this one patch of sky. And the idea was what? What was the ultimate idea to kind of find out? The ultimate goal was to determine the frequency of Earth-like planets around other stars. So how common is Earth out there? Yeah. It's hard to see, right? Because so many of these planets are dark, right? We may not see them because there's no light that shines on them, right? Right. Well, that's actually what we use. So we use a technique called uh, the transit technique. And what this does is uh, you monitor a star and you wait for the chance alignment of a planet that's orbiting the star to cross in front of it and block out some of the light. So we actually use the fact that the planet itself is very dark against the star. And we're looking for that little blip in the starlight that's due to the planet crossing in front of it. Here's Tabitha Boyajan on the TED stage. And so the team at NASA had developed very sophisticated computers to search for transits in all the Kepler data. At the same time of the first data release, astronomers at Yale were wondering an interesting thing. What if computers miss something? And so we launched the citizen science project called Planet Hunters to have people look at the same data. The human brain has an amazing ability for pattern recognition, sometimes even better than a computer. However, there was a lot of skepticism around this. My colleague, Deborah Fisher, founder of the Planet Hunters project, 
said that people at the time were saying, "You're crazy. There's no way that a computer will miss a signal." And so it was on the classic human versus machine gamble. And if we found one planet, we would be thrilled. When I joined the team four years ago, we had already found a couple. And today, with the help of over 300,000 science enthusiasts, we have found dozens. And we've also found one of the most mysterious stars in our galaxy. The planet hunters came across this one light curve from a star that didn't really fit into a classification of any other star that we know of. What do you mean? It was a transit-like dip in the star's light, meaning that it kind of went down and back up again. But uh, it was noted on the website that this was kind of giant, meaning that you know instead of a transit lasting for a couple of hours, this one lasted for over a week. A week. The star dimmed for a week. <laughs> yeah, that's right. And then uh, in 2011, we see a single but very significant. This thing went over 15 percent wow. drop wow. in the star's light, but it was a single event. Hmm. And then in 2013, almost two years later, that's when things start to get really crazy. Now, this light curve was a huge anomaly in the data because nothing else had looked like this ever before. There is a huge complex of dips in the light curve that appear, and they last for like a hundred days, all the way up into the Kepler mission's end. These dips have variable shapes. Some are very sharp and some are broad, and they also have variable durations. Some last just for a day or two, and some for more than a week. And there's also up and down trends within some of these dips, almost like several independent events were superimposed on top of each other. And at this time, the star drops in its brightness over 20 percent. This means that whatever is blocking its light has an area of over a thousand times the area of our planet Earth. This is truly remarkable. And so the citizen scientists, when they saw this, they notified the science team that they found something weird enough that it might be worth following up. And so when the science team looked at it, we're like, "Yeah, there's there's probably just something wrong with the data." But we looked really, really, really hard, and the data were good. And so what was happening had to be astrophysical, meaning that something in space was getting in the way and blocking starlight. And so at this point, we set out to learn everything we could about the star to see if we could find any clues to what was going on. And the citizen scientists who helped us in this discovery, they joined along for the ride, watching science in action firsthand. So eventually, people started coming up with their own theories about what was causing this mysterious dip in the light, and they started to share those theories with each other online. Now, some of them thought it could have been caused by comets—several hundred, like Halley-sized comets—and that's really big, and that's a whole lot of them. And then others thought it might be caused by the star itself. You know, it gets bright, and then it kind of like. Jiggles down a little bit, or maybe even something around it—something like a super Saturn-type object. And then one guy. This idea came from Dr. Jason Wright at Penn State University. He thought it could be caused by something else entirely.、Uh, he was working on a paper that also used Kepler data, and what he was doing is he was testing the idea that Kepler could have detected alien megastructures. You mean like the, like the Death Star? Yeah.、Uh, well,、um, believe it or not, the Death Star would be very easy to model、um, because it is so round.、Um, so we're talking something that's really, really, really big, much, much bigger than a planet. Like Jupiter size. You know, the whole idea here is、uh, much bigger than Jupiter. Much、too. bigger than Jupiter. Much bigger than Jupiter. How many aliens would it take to build that? <laughs> it would it would be an enormous amount of material. I'm just thinking about the、um, like the scaffolding of alien, like you know, aliens on those scaffolds, like trying to build that giant megastructure. It's gonna take a long time. Right, right. Well, I mean, if if you're talking, you see the the dip in the light at most is 22 percent. It would take over 50 Jupiter-sized objects to block、wow. out that amount of light. And that's、wow. just at that one period of time,、hmm, and that's、God. just the amount of whatever is blocking it that crosses in front of the star. Because you you could have you know part of it above the star, below the star. You're not getting that signal in the data. 
Well, there you have it. We're in a situation that could unfold to be a natural phenomenon we don't understand, or an alien technology we don't understand. Personally, as a scientist, my money is on the natural explanation. But don't get me wrong; I do think it would be awesome to find aliens. <laughs> so, what happens next? We need to continue to observe this star to learn out more what's happening. But professional astronomers like me, we have limited resources for this kind of thing, and Kepler is on to a different mission. And I'm happy to say that once again, citizen scientists have come in and saved the day. You see, this time, amateur astronomers with their backyard telescopes stepped up. Immediately, and started observing the star nightly at their own facilities, and I am so excited to see what they find. Could this have been discovered and examined without the participation of thousands of citizen scientists? I I really don't think so, because、hmm. before we knew about this star, we didn't really know what to look for,、huh. and all the searches before using this data. Had you know looked for something that was periodically appearing, so that's you know planets or some sort of variability,、um, what have you.、Um, this signal was huge in the data. It really was sticks out like a sore thumb. But your computers do exactly what you tell them to do, and、wow. we would not have found it without you know human eyes seeing it and saying, "Oh wow, that's that's interesting." So science is、uh, more often than not about、uh, raising more questions and finding answers, and it, it seems like in this case,、uh, you still don't know what's going on. I, yes, <laughs> <laughs> which is pretty cool. I don't know what's going on,、um, but yeah, but we're working at it. You know, we're collecting more data, and you know, we'll be able to. Rule out some things, and we'll be able to, you know, hopefully, you know, build evidence to support, you know, new hypotheses. But、um, yeah, we're we're still working on it. There's a lot of people working on it too. That's something to be proud of. I'm not in, in no way am I disparaging that. That is great. You've there are more questions now than you can answer, which is better, which is great. Well, that's yeah, that's that's science, right? That's right. Tabitha Boyajian. She's a professor of astronomy at Louisiana State University. You can see her full talk at TED.com. On the show today, citizen science. I'm Guy Raz, and you're listening to the TED Radio Hour from NPR. Hey, everyone! Just a quick thanks to two of our sponsors who help make this podcast possible. First, to Discover Card. Who alerts you if they find your social security number on any one of thousands of risky websites? Discover believes there are some things you just need to know. It's just another way Discover looks out for you and not just your account. And best of all, social security alerts are free for Discover card members. All you have to do is sign up online. Learn more at discover.com/freealerts. Limitations apply. Thanks also to the Platinum Card from American Express. Did you know that there's this place in Jackson Hole where you can see galaxies with the naked eye? That there's this co-working space in San Antonio that has yoga on Tuesdays, and that there's a place in Kenya where giraffes pop in to say hello at breakfast. There's a great big world out there, and no other card lets you experience it like the Platinum Card, backed by the service and security of American Express. It's the TED Radio Hour from NPR. I'm Guy Raz, and on the show today, citizen science. You know, if you think about science, right? For for most of human history, science was done by citizens, by amateurs, by people who we,、sure. we might call citizen scientists today. Like the age of discovery, these people didn't have PhDs; they were just、yeah. building telescopes and you know looking at the stars. Like that was science, and it it really only became this institutional thing really in the last hundred years. That's absolutely right. I mean. Some of the first citizen scientists were really religious people because、mm. uh, monks were collecting specimens of botany from around the world. They thought that the Garden of Eden must have been dispersed after the fall.、Um, Lewis and Clark, you know, looking for 
for the Northwest Passage, and Thomas Jefferson, who was a great citizen scientist, an avid, avid citizen scientist, took amazing data points. Charles Darwin himself is really the poster child for citizen science. He did not have an advanced degree, and he worked for no one. He worked for himself, no institution. This is science journalist Mary Ellen Hannibal. I mostly write books. My most recent book is called Citizen Scientist, Searching for Heroes and Hope in an Age of Extinction. Mary Ellen says that these early specimens and data points give us a glimpse of what the world looked like at that time. Those specimens are records of life as it was lived in a time and a place. These are vouchers of reality. They tell you a lot about the environment and the place and the time in which they were collected. And if we compare those records to the data we have today, they can show us how our environment is changing and even where it's headed. One of the things about citizen science that is incredibly full of makes me full of awe and wonder is is the ability to grapple with past, present, and future. So this is what we're able to kind of visualize now that we've never been able to before. And that shows us where we are in our own moment of time in a way that I think explodes the notion of, of time and space in a Star Trek-like way. So what, like, what does citizen science look like now? Well, citizen science gets the term science because of its big data applications. Um, using smartphone technology, statistical analysis, and just massive computing power, we are able to amass data points at vast scales that, that connect local, regional, continental, and global pictures of what's going on out there in the world. In a way, citizen scientists are kind of continuing the work of Lewis and Clark and Darwin and Jefferson, but this time with the mission to not only observe species, but also to save them. And technology is the key to compiling those millions of data points. Here's Mary Ellen on the TED stage. This is a screenshot from iNaturalist. This is one of my favorite citizen science platforms. So all of those blue dots represent people seeing pronghorn antelope taking a photograph of what they see. The app assigns the photographic observation the date, the time, the latitude, and the longitude of the photograph. Because it's GPS, it's the atomic clock, it is that observation in time. The important thing is I want you to know that we need to save nature and that we, it's a mob-sourced thing. What we want to do with something like iNaturalist is create this big biodiversity observation network. When we get this, we get data for all these kinds of species that you can see these patterns of how life is unfolding, get predictions of where extinctions are happening, and then make surgical strikes to help those animals and plants. You know, we hear a lot about, like, the coming mass extinction on planet Earth, and we will need experts to, to resolve that. But obviously, we also need ordinary people to observe, to gather data, to, to, to play a role in, in, in that process. Yeah. You know, I, I think we all have a moral obligation to take part in this because there's so much at stake right now with how we're losing biodiversity. And the rate at which we're losing them equals that which took out the dinosaurs. But even arguably worse than that is this massive loss of bodies of wildlife that we're experiencing. So even in the last 40 years, we have lost a billion birds. And then, you know, there's been commensurate proportions of loss of reptiles, amphibians, small mammals, large mammals. So you start to see those patterns, right? And then you start to understand that if we're really going to get a hold of this extinction and this loss of biodiversity, we need to get those patterns all over the world at much larger scales. And we can only do that by getting a lot of eyes out there. And then that was really where citizen science comes into this, is that citizen science is the tool for expanding that work and also for enjoining other people to participate. Do you think there's something to this idea of of sort of taking part in something bigger, you know, um, either gathering data or taking observations or just contributing somehow is a, a, a basic human instinct? Or do you think that it's this is something that, you know, very extraordinary kinds of people 
get involved with? Well, I think it's it's something that is very pleasurable and accessible. Some people, you know, are just the most amazing, you know, amateur naturalist. But for those of us who are not as, you know, avidly driven by wanting to see every single slug or every single bird, it definitely is very satisfying for me to give data into bigger data sets and feel like I'm part of something bigger. So not only are you contributing today, you're also paying forward the work of people who came before you. And that's another thing, that we don't know how scientists or people 50 years, we don't know what their questions will be. We couldn't have guessed that we would have the questions we have today 50 or 100 years ago. So it's really part of being something bigger than yourself. And to me, that feels good. That's science writer Mary Ellen Hannibal. You can see her full talk at ted.npr.org. So earlier in the show, we met Joey Ito. He's the director of the MIT Media Lab and one of the founders of a website called SafeCast. And after the 2011 earthquake in Japan and the subsequent nuclear disaster at Fukushima, Joey and other volunteers on the ground were able to collect and share information about radiation levels through that website, SafeCast. And that was all pretty much done by not scientists or academics, but by ordinary citizens looking to lend a hand. We've had thousands of people who have interacted with us in some way. And, you know, the, at the beginning, the government and some of the people were a little bit sketchy about us because, you know, we were questioning the government and, and so on. Um, but uh, after a while, they realized we were, first of all, that our data was good. Uh, secondly, that we were doing it to help. But this sort of bottom-up approach wouldn't have been possible without the spread of technology. Joey Ito explains this idea from the TED stage. Three years later, we have 16 million data points. We have designed our own Geiger counters that you can download the designs and plug it into the network. We have an app that shows you most of the radiation in Japan and other parts of the world. We are arguably one of the most successful citizen science projects in the world. And we have created the largest open data set of radiation measurements. And the interesting thing here is how did, thank you, how did a bunch of amateurs who really didn't know what we were doing somehow come together and do what NGOs and the government were completely incapable of doing? And I would suggest that this has something to do with the internet. It's not a fluke. It wasn't luck, and it wasn't because it was us. It helped that it was an event that pulled everybody together, but it was a new way of doing things that was enabled by the internet and a lot of the other things that were going on. And I want to talk a little bit about what those new principles are. So remember before the internet? <laughs> I, I call this BI, OK? So in BI, life was simple. Things were Euclidean, Newtonian, somewhat predictable. People actually tried to predict the future, even the economists. And then the internet happened, and the world became extremely complex, extremely low-cost, extremely fast, and those Newtonian laws that we so dearly cherished turned out to be just local ordinances. And what we found was that in this completely unpredictable world, that most of the people who were surviving were working with a sort of a different set of principles. And I want to talk a little bit about that. Before the internet, if you remember, when we tried to create services, what you would do is you'd create the hardware layer and the network layer and the software, and it would cost millions of dollars to do anything that was substantial. So when it costs millions of dollars to do something substantial, what you would do is you'd get an MBA who would write a plan and get the money from VCs or big companies, and then you'd hire the designers and the engineers, and they'd build the thing. This is the sort of before-internet BI innovation model. What happened after the internet was the cost of innovation went down so much because the cost of collaboration, the cost of distribution, the cost of communication, and Moore's law made it so that the cost of trying a new thing became nearly zero. And so you would have Google, Facebook, Yahoo, students that didn't have permission permissionless innovation, didn't have permission, didn't have PowerPoints, they just built the thing, then they raised the money, and then they sort of figured out a business plan, and maybe later on they hired some MBAs. So the internet caused innovation, at least in software and services, to go from an MBA-driven innovation model to a designer-engineer-driven innovation model. 
and it pushed innovation to the edges, to the dorm rooms, to the startups, away from the large institutions, the stodgy old institutions that had the power and the money and the authority. Where do you imagine citizen science or, or bottom-up science um, being useful and being innovative? What what fields and what areas do you think ordinary people could actually change or make a contribution toward? So we at the Media Lab, Reed Hoffman, funded a $250,000 prize for uh, disobedience. And we gave it to the doctor and the, the researcher who did the whistleblowing in Flint for the water, the lead in the water. But when we talked to um, them, they said that, you know, it's actually local citizen scientists in Michigan who alerted them that something was weird. And if it weren't for the citizen scientists, they would never have known to, or not known as quickly, to start looking at things and noticing things were re- weird and then amplify that out and bring all the academic rigor around and so on and so forth. But it was really the citizen scientists in these local communities that were saying, wait, the, the water tastes weird, what's going on? You know, And, and so, so citizen science, first of all, can be everywhere and anyone can do it and it's important. I think the environmental things are, are kind of the obvious ones. Um, I think, you know, air quality is something that actually SafeCast is very uh, interested in. We've just created a a standalone solar-powered, you know, just drop-and-play air quality and radiation monitoring system called SolarCast, and we're starting to deploy these in the United States, and and we're hoping to cover vast areas. I mean, the the term citizen scientist is still, you know, it's – I I think – Many people kind of imagine like kids in a a, a school laboratory or something, right? Mm-hmm. Um, but is it a? I mean, do you think we're at a at a sort of a an inflection point where, you know, in ten years from now, we, we're going to start to wonder how people ever didn't take this seriously? Yeah, I th- I think it's going to start in different fields in different ways. So I think in amateur astronomy now, you're starting to find things being discovered by amateur astronomers a lot more. Mm. And they're definitely, you know, whether you're talking about NASA or everybody else, they somehow engage the amateurs. Um, you know, we have one of our fellows and uh, uh, affiliates um, used to have this thing called the Nautilus where um, they it was a ship and they would have this uh, uh, tethered robot that would go undersea and they would uh, broadcast the video onto the internet. And they would go and explore wrecks and things like that. And you'd have people watching and sending them chat messages and things like that. And often things were identified by people on the internet. So they, they go to some place on the map and they say, wow, what's this weird shipwreck? And and some person who's obsessed with that particular period in history in that particular region will be able to identify things that no one, none of the experts there could do. And, and, and Wikipedia is actually an interesting piece of this because if you look at Wikipedia, some of the pages are being managed by these uh, complete amateurs who are totally obsessed with knowing everything about a particular thing. And they've scoured the books, they've scoured the internet, and they are way up there, if not past the academics in those fields. And so the network, the internet allows these communities to find each other and create a kind of emergent peer review. Um, Joey, when you think about uh, when you think about the pace of technology and 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 the kind of access to data and information and knowledge that it's uh, it's it's given to to virtually anybody, um, has it has it kind of leveled the playing field for for, for ordinary people for for non credentialed people to to make a, a a real contribution to science? I think so. I think it's so easy to get access to the tools, the data the academic papers, although it should be easier than it is. And citizen scientists and people who are outside of academia are much more focused on the specific outcome that they're looking for. So a lot of academics will ask, will say, well, you know, that sounds interesting, but I don't think that will help my academic career. Yeah. Whereas a citizen scientist is saying, how can I help this community? And they're going to pull all the tools together that they need. And so in many ways, more than academics, the citizen scientist is going to be able to deploy. And you can have bad citizen science. So it's important to say that not all citizen science is good. But if you have people who are just as committed to finding the truth 
and as committed to the integrity of the design and the data as the academics, and there are plenty of people like that, then you will create a culture um, that's a lot like the academic culture peer review, except a lot more agile because they don't have all of the clunky things like waiting for years before things are published or worrying about tenure and so on and so forth. So I think that citizen science well executed for many fast-moving areas is going to um, outpace academic research. Joe Ito, he directs the Media Lab at MIT. You can see his full talk at TED.com. Thanks for listening to our show, Citizen Science, this week. If you want to find out more about who is on it, you can go to ted.npr.org. You can also see hundreds more TED Talks at ted.com or on the TED app. And you can hear this show anytime by subscribing to our podcast. Do it now on Apple Podcasts or however you get your podcasts. Our production staff at NPR includes Jeff Rogers, Sanaz Meshkinpour, Janae West, Neva Grant, Rund Abdel Fattah, and Rachel Faulkner, with help from Daniel Shukin and Tony Liu. Our intern is Benjamin Klempe. Our partners at TED are Chris Anderson, Colin Helms, Anna Phelan, and Janet Lee. If you want to let us know what you think about the show, please go to Apple Podcasts and write a review. You can also write directly to us. That's TEDRadioHour at NPR.org. You can also tweet us. It's at TEDRadioHour. I'm Guy Raz, and you've been listening to Ideas Worth Spreading right here on the TED Radio Hour from NPR. I'm Linda Holmes. And I'm Stephen Thompson. There's more stuff to watch and read these days than any one person can get to. That's why we make Pop Culture Happy Hour. Twice a week, we sort through the nonsense, share reactions, and give you the lowdown on what's worth your precious time and what's not. Find Pop Culture Happy Hour on the NPR One app or wherever you get your podcasts.